Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPK on the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University, member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director herself with the Westport Community Theater. And Ruth Ann is here with us in the studio this morning. Hi, Ruth. Hi, Scott. Richard Hill, also here in the studio this morning, is um, host of WPKN Show's first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio and Organic Farm Stand. He's also a rotating host of Mike Check. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. Hey, Richard, how are you doing? Um, breathing, and I uh, seem to have a pulse. That's that's always a good thing. <laughs> Very healthy, healthy stats there. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPCAN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, and uh, produce the syndicated show Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, with which both uh, Ruth Ann and Richard are contributors. In a few minutes, <clears throat> we're going to be joined by the Nation Magazine's national correspondent, uh, that's John Nichols. They're going to be talking about local and statewide election results from last Tuesday, as well as opposition to President Biden's refusal to call for a ceasefire in Gaza, where more than 11,000 Palestinian civilians, including 4,000 children, have been killed since the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack that killed 1,200 Israeli men, women, and children. But uh, right now, we're very happy to welcome to our program Nancy Mansour to talk about the horrific current situation in Gaza, the enormous loss of life, and it seems to be inaction by our government and many across the world. Nancy Mansour is executive director of Eyewitness Palestine, a transformational education, educational program that inspires and trains participants to be accountable, lifelong social justice advocates in the Palestine Solidarity Movement and within their own communities. She's also co-founder of the group Existence is Resistance, a grassroots not-for-profit voluntary organization that has taken dozens of delegations to Palestine where they've conducted workshops with children in refugee camps, as well as organized hundreds of events and conferences in both the U.S. and Europe. Nancy uh, co-executive produced the film documentary Hip Hop is Bigger Than the Occupation and the soon-to-be-released documentary Black in the Holy Land. Nancy, thank you so much for making time to come on uh, Resistance Roundtable this morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, it's great to have your voice uh, part of our program this morning. Richard Hill, our co-host, has uh, our first question for you this morning, Nancy. Good morning, Nancy. It's a pleasure to have you. Scott mentioned a bit about Eyewitness Palestine, uh, an organization for which you are the executive director. I wonder if you'd say a word or two more about that organization, what its mission is, its origin, and some of the actions and activities that it sponsors. So Eyewitness Palestine has been conducting delegations. Um, They were formerly interfaith peace builders um, until 2018 um, with a name change to Eyewitness Palestine, just, you know, growing with the... um, the delegations that had happened and and the situation and you know they've been doing delegations giving people oh, we have i should say giving people first-hand experiences uh you know into the situation i've i've always i mean it's the same thing that we did with the uh, existence resistance i always say that you can read somebody else's book from their experience you could you know watch somebody else's film that they made through their eyes um and but going to Palestine yourself and 48, um, what they call Israel proper, um, and and witnessing what is happening uh, is the most powerful thing that anybody can do if they truly want to understand what is happening there. Uh, you know, I think some people are very, as you can see right now, um, even with a genocide unfolding, people are nervous about speaking out because they get attacked. Um, by Zionists, and they don't 
have the talking points or, you know, they're, they're throwing a bunch of propaganda and they don't know how to answer it. But I think once you've been there, um, it just, you know, it, it makes it so much easier to be able to answer those questions um, with conviction because it's your experience. And I think it's probably one of the most important um, organizations in the movement um, you know, for the liberation of Palestine uh, to give people those experiences. Thanks for for that summary. You know, I understand that you have some family members currently living in the West Bank. Is that the case? I have friends and, I mean, people that I would call family in the West Bank. My family is in uh, 48 uh, occupied Palestine, what they call Israel proper, um, and, you know, my my whole family, in fact. Mm-hmm. Well, given the unique level of involvement that you obviously have there, I wonder if you could give us your overall perspective on the catastrophe that is unfolding in Gaza and, you know, what news you personally are getting from your family members and your friends who are actually in the West Bank where even the Western media is reporting really an appalling increase in settler violence against Palestinians. So just, you know, just an update from from Gaza, um, where I also have many friends um, and folks that we haven't been able to reach. Over 11,000 are already dead. Um Thousands of children, thousands of Palestinian children have been uh, massacred there by the Israeli government. Um, There are illegal weapons being used on them from white phosphorus to another weapon where doctors at various hospitals have said they are seeing people coming in with their completely charred, like fourth degree burns, which they've never seen before. And they have no idea what is causing this. And, you know, Israel's known for testing weapons on Palestinians as they did in 2014. And white phosphorus, if people don't know, is illegal under international law. And it burns flesh to the bone and also has after effects. When I was in Palestine in 2014, I was uh, working with... Uh, supporting the injured that were coming in from Gaza to the West Bank into various hospitals. And I would go every morning and and check who was brought in. And there were children that told me they didn't come in from because of this, uh, you know, the 2014 bombing. They told me they were there because they had got cancer from the white phosphorus that was used in the 2009 um, onslaught. And so the situation in Gaza, as we all know, it's a genocide. And every single person on this earth should be calling for a ceasefire. Um, In the West Bank, Israel has murdered Palestinians on a daily basis. There have been attacks by settlers. In 2015, when I was there, I attended the funeral of Ali Dawabshi, an 18-month-old baby who was burnt to death with his parents in his home while they were sleeping by settlers from a nearby settlement. I, have, I know the family of Muhammad Abu Khadir, who was kidnapped from his, the steps of his home in Jerusalem and had gasoline poured down his throat and, and burnt alive. There are atrocities happening in Palestine for the past 75 years plus. Um, you know, currently in the West Bank, since October 7th, over 200 Palestinians have been murdered. Uh, you know, there's so much I could... There's thousands of Gazans that were working with work permits within 48 that have been picked up, beaten and dumped in the West Bank at various checkpoints. A couple of days ago, a friend called me and told me that Israeli forces ran into al Maqasid Hospital in Jerusalem, took out Gazan women, four of them that are seriously sick with cancer, and dumped them at Kalandia checkpoint and then arrested the doctors that were helping them in that hospital. There are also videos circulating 
um, from Masafariyatta and other areas in the West Bank where Palestinians are being stripped naked. The Israelis film them, kicking them, urinating on them, um, you know, degrading them, beating them. And then in the in 48, where my the majority of my family is, my parents can't even speak Arabic where they were born. When I call them, they can just about speak to me, and they don't speak to me in Arabic, which I speak Arabic fluently, even though I was born in the UK because my parents didn't speak English. So our language to speak to each other is Arabic, and my parents are too scared. My dad is 85 years old. My dad was born before the state of Israel. He's been through this once before. They're arresting people all over uh, 48, what they call Israel proper, just for liking posts that say end the genocide. Anything that shows any type of support for their brothers and sisters in Gaza, they are being arrested for. Um, you know, it, it, the situation is, it's all over. And th and this is something that, that the Israelis have spoken about over and over, of taking over that area. Um, and so, you know, I, this is just... Uh, this is just a plan that has been in place long before October 7th. Um, they've, you know, they've displaced thousands, over a million people. I think 1.5 million people are now displaced in the Gaza Strip. I mean, you know, thinking, just we're trying to think about when this will end and then trying to think about how they're going to rebuild, it's, it's overwhelming. Um, and then to see people booing people... Uh, that are interrupting um, Joe Biden, uh, asking him to call for a ceasefire, people booing them. So I, I don't understand how people are okay with watching civilians being slaughtered. I don't understand which part of what Israel is doing is self-defense, which part of bombing hospitals. They have bombed numerous hospitals. They bombed, they, they set fire to a children's hospital yesterday. Like, which part of that is self-defense? This has been going on for, you know, almost uh, almost a century. This is, this is nothing new. Um, it's just right now we're seeing it. it. It was done in increments before, you know. It was, it was one or two people a day, and then every couple of years when there's elections, you know, to show their power and try and get votes like Netanyahu has and does. Um, you know, they slaughter as many Palestinians as they can. Um, and and now we're watching it literally just in, 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 in fast motion. And when people say to me, how was Israel created? This is exactly what you're watching right now is exactly how they created uh, the state of Israel in 1948. Nancy, thank you for just, you know, your expression of horrors, what's going on from the heart and from your own experience. Our listeners appreciate hearing that. Uh, Nancy, the U.S., as you just referenced, the U.S. is Israel's number one economic and military supporter. And, and given America's enormous leverage in influencing how Israel is conducting its war in Gaza right now, that has killed, as you said, over 11,000 Palestinian civilians, what uh, can people here in the U.S. do uh, to, to pressure President Biden to change his position and demand Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu comply with international law governing warfare and, and stop the targeting of civilian infrastructures such, as you said, hospitals, ambulances, schools, mosques, churches. In, in your view, being so close to this situation, what's the most effective thing listeners who share this view can do right now to help change the Biden administration's policy on Gaza uh, to demand a ceasefire of Israel. There's been some movement on what they call a humanitarian pause, but certainly people on the ground in, in Gaza think that is not nearly enough to save lives. Yeah, it's nowhere, it's nowhere near. Um, you know, there's, they're saying eight trucks are going in. Gaza on a, on a regular day gets a couple of hundred trucks. Um, you know, the few trucks they've let in, um, I'm not sure of the total number, but, you know, the first day it was like 18 trucks went in, you know, three weeks in. Um, so you can imagine that if on a regular 
basis, it's it's a couple of hundred. That that is, it's, and then the things that they're sending, um, you know, and and not what it, that is being requested by the doctors on the ground, um, the folks on the ground. They had a um, delivery of water the other day, trucks with with water, um, and Israel bombed those trucks carrying bottled water. Um, you know, I think in an ideal world, uh, I would tell people to stop paying taxes until they, you know, this government stopped sending our tax money 10.4 million a day. 10.4 million dollars a day from our tax money goes to Israel for weapons. On top of Friends of the IDF, which is a 501c3 in this country collecting money for a foreign army millions of dollars a year on top of the money that Biden and weapons that Biden sent to Israel just in the last few weeks. Um, but obviously, that's not as easily done as it is said. But for people to put pressure on their local representatives, on their Congress people, on their senators, um, it, you know, calling, writing, it does make a difference. Um, if, you know, if somebody's ignoring something, um, they, you know, if, if we're not saying anything, they're not going to do anything. Um, and I think the more people that speak out, uh, you know, the quicker we can get to a ceasefire. Um, you know, Pressuring, pressuring representatives to call for a ceasefire, I think, is number one um, right now. And also, I think, you know, language is very important. You know, it, it's easy to just say a war, a war, a war, but this is not a war. Uh, a war would be between two armies. Um, and, you know, the, the scale and uh, weaponry that Israel has, not to mention the hundreds of nuclear weapons they have from America, um, are nothing on a scale of what the Palestinian resistance um, or Palestinian elected government has in Gaza. Um, nowhere near, nowhere near uh, a war. Um, we are watching a genocide unfold, and I've seen people saying, you know, when your kids ask you in, in 10, 15 years, what did you do? Or what are you going to tell them that, you know, nothing? I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, people have to speak out. This is the time to speak out. There is no, uh, there is nothing wrong with saying it is wrong to murder people. It's just funny how people are quick to say it, you know, when it was Ukraine, when it's uh, a country that doesn't have black and brown children in it. And so I urge people to please speak out. The Palestinians have been suffering in their own country for almost a decade, um, for almost a century, in their own country. Refugees have been made refugees again. How does a refugee be made a refugee twice in their own country? I just urge people to speak out, to, you know, um, speak to their friends, to educate themselves as well. There is there is documentaries and and. and very good books out there that you can read. One of them by Elam Papi, uh, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. He is an uh, Israeli, uh, born in Haifa, um, and, you know, an amazing writer. And I think that book really uh, can help people um, grasp, you know, the, the essence of, of uh, the situation and what is happening. Um, but I do, I definitely um, call on people to, you know, keep posting as well social media um keep posting putting pressure on your local representatives call them every day put an alarm in your phone you know it takes two minutes just to make a phone call that could you know potentially save lives we're speaking with nancy Mansour, executive director of eyewitness palestine here on resistance roundtable this morning our co-host ruth ann baumgartner has a question for you um Listening to your uh, passionate and uh, certainly well-informed well voice, uh, I've I wondered that actually I've never heard you before, and I'm almost a, a glutton for news. I, I read a certain amount. Um, old age is inter interrupting that. I watch a lot of television, and we look for 
stations that we expect will be balanced. But uh, I have hardly ever heard um, voices like yours once in a while on MSNBC, but it's not the dominant uh, voice. Which which media outlets uh, have you found most responsive to uh, what you have to say? Um, to be honest, uh, really independent media. Um, I've I've urged people to watch Al Jazeera English. Um, there are various um, news outlets, um, you know, like online. That uh, you know, Mondo Weiss is very good. Um, Electronic Intifada is very good. Um, but yeah, I mean, at this point, I think we've we well, not not even at this point. I think we realized a, a long time ago that um, you know, mainstream media is not uh, is not for us. And I th- I would hope that in 2023 with all the tools that we have available to us that people will realize that when one person, I mean, at one point, Rupert Murdoch owned over 800 news channels and newspapers, which would tell you that um, would definitely sway the news in one direction if they're paid for it, which we knew he was. Like many people in Congress are paid by APAC, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, which is one of the biggest lobbies in D.C., which would tell you why you're not seeing the real news and why you're seeing a lot of propaganda. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, the, 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 you know, there are jobs to counter voices like us. Like, literally, people get paid to go out and harass journalists mm. um, to make sure that there isn't any news that speaks about what Israel is truly doing. That's why they've murdered over 41 journalists in Gaza. Um, you know, that there's, there's actually a very good documentary where uh, actually it's made by many Israelis, I believe, and uh, many members of their uh, government, of their Knesset, uh, stated that, you know, 50% of winning uh, the fight for Israel is propaganda and PR, and it's called the documentary is free online. It's called Peace, Propaganda, and the Promised Land, and it's an old one, but it's very good because it really breaks down uh, why we are supporting um, such a genocidal state. Thank you so much, Richard Hill is back with us to talk. Speaking of the mainstream media, uh, last night I was watching MSNBC. And Ayman Mulhuddin, for whom I give thanks every day, filled in for Alex Wagner in her normal slot. And he showed original documentary footage of the 1948 expulsion of Palestinians during the creation of the State of Israel, that expulsion known as the Nakba, or catastrophe. He juxtaposed that on a split screen with the current footage of the forced migration of Palestinians from the north of Gaza to the south. That's the first time in my experience that I had seen any footage of the Nakba, of the original 1948 expulsion of Palestinians. That imagery was so powerful to be seen on mainstream media. It's, I think it's fascinating to see these things kind of leaking into or somehow being sneaked into the mainstream media by responsible journalists. One other thing that happened last night was that on Chris Hayes' show, also on MSNBC, he mentioned that a fact that I did not know, which is that no Western journalists are allowed to enter Gaza without being embedded with the Israeli military. So the only journalism we're getting out of Gaza is from Palestinian journalists who are being, as you pointed out, slaughtered in the bombing, tens of them already killed. I wonder what your thought is on the role of journalism and the fact that even in the Western media, this kind of phenomenon is beginning to occur where the truth is being included in some of these mainstream broadcasts. So first of all, um, thank you. And um, I I do want to say, you know, that there are journalists like Wael Dahdul, who is one of Al Jazeera's um, top correspondents in the Gaza Strip. And Israel was attempting to uh, stop Al Jazeera from reporting 
Um, and when they couldn't, instead they went and bombed his house and killed his children and his wife. That's what's happening to journalists uh, in Gaza. And then the young people that you see, like Mata Zazaizi, uh, Bissan, Odi, when you see these young these young people who are like in their early 20s, who were photographers of the beauty of Gaza. It's on the Mediterranean. It's one of, I went in 2009 um, to witness the devastation after they, you know, quote unquote, Operation Cast Lead. It's one of the most beautiful places. I mean, it's like Haifa. It's on the Mediterranean. Um, and these these young folks would take pictures of the beauty of Gaza. And um, now they're forced to be war reporters. Um and I, I urge people to please, if people are on Instagram, we have been um, posting all the different journalists that are on the ground. Um, you know, day to day, we post a new journalist on our Eyewitness Palestine uh, account on Instagram. So if you go to Eyewitness Palestine on Instagram, you can see these different journalists, read their stories and follow them. Um, they are, I mean, they, there's some very graphic footage um, that's coming out, but that's exactly what it is. I mean, they're filming in, in real time and, and trying to upload as much as they can, when they can. And I'm sure, you know, they're saying literally this isn't even 1% of what is happening um, due to the, you know, the electric, um, the electricity uh, being cut off by Israel. You know, they've been charging on car batteries. They have generators because obviously they've been through this before. Um, you know, I watch Zionists online and they're like, well, how are they posting if uh, they have no electricity? Gotcha. And it's like, um, you know, Palestinians are some of the most resourceful people on earth. Um, and they've been through this before. So there's, some of them have generators. Um, there are, you know, there's different ways that they're going to various places and plugging in a hundred phones at once. And you can see all of this if you follow these, these uh, journalists that are on the ground. Um, so that's the first thing I would definitely urge people to try and follow as many people in Gaza on the ground as you can. Um, of course, uh, Israel is going to make sure that mainstream media um, is reporting from their end. Um, I've seen some of it. Um, I think that the reason more and more truth is being shown is because there there's just things you cannot hide and they try like they tried to put the bombing of the hospital on palestinians they've done that for decades of you know trying to turn it around and say oh well that was the palestinian and then eventually investigations are done and it is proved that in fact it was israel and you know the biggest thing is that when they do it they're uh they take so much pride and joy in doing things like this um, that they post about it on Twitter and then delete it when they, you know, somebody says you can't put that out there publicly. So a lot of these tweets were also um, screenshot and and, um, and put out for people to see that they gloated in bombing the hospital. Uh, you know that they bombed one of the oldest, I think it's the third oldest church in the world in Gaza. There are Christians in Gaza, yes, and Israel murdered them too. Um... I think that mainstream media realizes to some extent that they can't hide everything and I think people are trying to just cover themselves and, you know, um, because everything is available on the internet, that's the thing. And I think they're covering themselves because at some point everybody's going to be held accountable for being silent or for telling lies or for hiding the truth. Um, you know, about this genocide that is happening. Um, and so I, I believe that is, that's probably the, the situation. I'm not a, you know, a professional, but just from what I'm seeing, um, I'm assuming that people are, and, and also I truly believe that there is some humanity in people. I don't, you know, any parent, any parent, you know, I have a young child and I cry every single night because it's a privilege to be able to hug her and put her into bed and read stories to her. And it's a privilege to wake up with her alive. Um, and I know that thousands of Palestinian mothers can't do that. Uh, the, you know, the fear in the children. And I feel that any human being that is a parent can see that this is wrong. There is nothing 
nothing about bombing hospitals. There is nothing about bombing civilians while they're sleeping. There is nothing about bombing civilians that were told to go south and run flatbed open trucks with Israel's high-tech, some of the most high-tech technology that they have, um, and they bomb them. There is nothing about that that is self-defense. And I feel that people are starting to realize that they have just been fed lies. And any human being, any parent that watches this unfold should feel something. And I also just want to say, you know, again, I reiterate the Palestinians are on their own land. You know, um, Palestinians don't have anywhere to go. This is their land. This is where their grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents were all born. This is where they are from. And anybody, anybody I know on this earth would do whatever it took to protect their home and their children if somebody came with guns with the intention to take their home from them. And, and this is what has been happening for, you know, almost a century. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. And uh, please leave our, our listeners with the uh, web address for your organization, Eyewitness Palestine. It is uh, eyewitnesspalestine.org, and it's I as in E-Y-E, witnesspalestine.org, and also on Instagram. Well, thank you very much. We, we do appreciate having this discussion this morning as dark as it is and uh hopefully if we speak again soon we'll have a little more hope appreciate you thank you for having me thanks nancy that's nancy mansour executive director of eyewitness palestine i'm going to get in touch with our next guest john nichols from the nation magazine while you both talk amongst yourselves all right as usual, we will observe all the rules of uh, decorum as we tra as we chat, Ruth. I hope uh, we can adhere to those. Yes, I, I have put on my extra-large boxing gloves, and they have make no impact at all. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I just wanted to say, you know, further to the conversation we were having about the media, that <clears throat> on that show that Ayman Mulhuddin was subbing for Alex Wagner last night, uh, toward the end of the show, he had on... Florida State Representative Angie Nixon. This is, you know, small ball in terms of American politics, but in the Florida State Legislature, she proposed a resolution demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. On the floor of the House in Florida, she was accused of being, quote, evil and, quote, an anti-Semite by one of her colleagues. And, of course, the resolution was defeated but once again, I think that notion of calling for an end of violence, that that gets conflated with anti-Semitism and a support of terrorism is, to me, one of the most horrifying and egregious things that have happened in our political debate in this country. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Richard. I'm, I'm just trying to think of where this propensity among Americans to take a side and just not want to hear from the other side where this came from. But I guess we've always had it because that was the way you could manage to fight the Civil War, isn't it? You take a side and you know you're right and the other side is wrong. I'm glad the way, that it came out the way it did. <laughs> that it did. But uh, it seems to be that, that, that those mind frames linger. Um, maybe also kids just hate history so much uh, that they don't want to hear any more of it when they when they leave the classroom. Yeah, well, that issue of context, you know, is Americans are really averse to context. The notion of actually hearing what preceded the current status, the current unfolding of events, avoiding that, just eschewing it, choking on it, <laughs> not being interested in it, is something which just blows my mind every time because... How the hell can you actually view current events without seeing them in the stream of events that preceded them, in the, in the river of history that flows into the present moment? Right, and, and I don't know, we kind of treat history as if it's not very important anymore because um, I believe I've heard from kids that it's boring. I don't really know how 
history and current events could be boring, but that seems to be an idea, like studying English literature is boring also, I've been told. If an amazingly shocking event happening in the, in the present does not inspire one to wonder what came before it, what caused it, right. then there's something missing in the, uh, in the American psyche. I think I speculate also that it may have something to do with how excited Americans were by the founding of Israel. And they still don't want to quite uh, entertain the possibility that it hasn't been uh, as thoroughly successful an experiment as they would have liked. Well, thank you both for carrying on. Got John Nichols on the line. John Nichols, The Nation Magazine's National Affairs Correspondent, joins us this morning. John is also a contributing writer for the Progressive Magazine in these times and associate editor at the Capital Times, the daily newspaper of Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, John is the author of many books. Recent titles include Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers and The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, the Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. Earlier this year, John teamed up with Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders to write the book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. John is a good friend and longtime supporter of WPKN and independent non-commercial community radio. And uh, we're very happy you could join us this morning. John, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Good to be with all of you. John, we, we wanted to talk about uh, local and statewide election results from last Tuesday that you've written uh, quite a bit about. And, uh, mm-hmm. But I, I'd like to start uh, really connected with our previous interview on the crisis in Gaza. Um, mm-hmm. There is growing opposition, especially within the Democratic Party, to uh, Joe Biden's embrace of Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's relentless bombing of Gaza since October 7th. When Hamas terrorists attacked and killed 1,200 Israeli civilians, kidnapped 240 Israeli civilians, and brought them back to Gaza as hostages. Thus far, President Biden has refused to call for a ceasefire, and instead he's talking about a humanitarian pause, and there's some some of that in place now. In in spite of the fact that 11,000 Palestinian civilians, including 4,000 children, have been killed by Israeli bombs since October 7th, I wondered if you'd talk about uh, what you see now in just a recent poll. Uh, nearly half of the Democrats disapprove of how President Biden is handling the Israel-Hamas conflict. 65% per, uh, percent of Democrats younger than 45 and 58% of non-white Democrats say they're opposed to Biden's handling of this conflict. Mm-hmm. Well, you're... you're- Citing the numbers that are, are relevant, obviously, from any political standpoint, you know, polls, polls tell you where you're at at a certain point, and obviously things can change, right? But as of now, Joe Biden's stance on Palestine and Israel-Palestine is doing him a lot of damage with his base. And there are many ways to measure that. You can you can look at polls which show approval or disapproval. That That tells you a little bit. Um, but it doesn't tell you everything about what might happen in a situation where, say, Biden was on the ballot as opposed to Donald Trump. Were you concerned in that that you know more tangible circumstance comes up is not so much that uh, a lot of folks might switch their stance from Biden to Trump or from Biden to a Republican, but rather that folks will just stand down, that they will uh, either not vote, or if they do vote, they will not do so enthusiastically and not participate as activists or volunteers for a campaign. And I think for Biden, that's a real vulnerability at this point. Uh, one of the things that, something I wrote about today, as a matter of fact, it's, it's up on the Nation site, is a piece on 500 staffers for the Biden 2000 campaign. Again, I'll emphasize that number. 500 of them signed a letter asking him to support a ceasefire and to take steps to, you know, really to address all of the underlying issues in Israel and Palestine. Um, And, you know, I talked to some of the people that were involved in this. These are not, you know, just people who handed out a leaflet someplace. These are people who were paid staffers. They were folks who ran his digital campaigns, uh, ran his outreach, did field direction on the ground in battleground states. 
and they're mostly young, uh, Israeli-American, Palestinian-American, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, not religious. Um, But when you're talking about taking 500 of your best and brightest young activists, and they're saying that they, they think the president is wrong, and many of them I spoke with, or folks I spoke with, were very, very upset, very angry with where Biden's at. He can't afford to lose these folks. I mean, this is a this is a practical reality. And no matter where somebody stands as regards all the issues that are in play, um, if you step back in that and look at the political consequences here, um, they could be quite serious. Now, you don't know where you're going to be a year from now. That's bottom line. I mean, obviously, politics evolve, circumstances change. But um, if hundreds and hundreds of the people who elected Joe Biden in 2020 are not out there working for him in 2024, that's that's a red alert. That's a that's a potential real problem. Thank you for that, John. It's a sobering news about the political fallout here at home when democracy itself is at stake mm-hmm. in this next election. Uh, Richard Hill, co-host Richard Hill, has a question for you. Sure. Oh, yeah. Just following up on that, John, I guess uh, I'm wondering, as much as I, I really dislike focusing on presidential politics a year out from the election. So early, yeah. <laughs> when other democracies seem to get the whole thing done in a couple of months or even weeks. You know, I wonder if you can just read the following words with regard to the 2024 election and just give your reaction to them. I'll read them off and maybe have you give your general response. Mm -hmm. And here they are, young people, African-Americans, Latinos, Arab-Americans, and then if you can put that all in the framework of the word turnout and mm-hmm. just uh, sort of give your reaction to that. Sure. It's, a, it's obviously you're coming off uh, some of what Scott did in his setup and some of what we were just talking about there. And that is that um, you're talking about core groupings within the democratic constituency, right? These are base, these are base uh, voting blocks. And for a democratic presidential candidate, um, you can't afford to have uh, weakness, or loss of enthusiasm among those groups. If you do, um, then you're in a circumstance where uh, you begin building your your effort to get to uh, a majority, or at least to get to a plurality, uh, from a standpoint of great vulnerability. Right? It's much harder to get there, um, and there's you know maybe some ways you do it by appealing to the center, or you know appealing even to the center right, but. Um, there's very little likelihood in this very divided country that that's going to work. And so for Biden, this is a serious issue. I mean, he's got to um, make uh, a reconnection with a lot of folks who I think in the last month have gotten um, very disappointed in him, very upset with him. He's lost, clearly the polling shows it, among, for instance, Arab Americans. He's lost a tremendous amount of support. Um, and that's a big deal in states like uh, not just Michigan, but Arizona and, and Georgia. So what we're looking at here is is a serious political reality. I would counsel, however, and, and this is something to keep in mind, um, the results from the off-year elections, which occurred on Tuesday, suggest that even in this incredibly tenuous and very difficult circumstance, um, uh, turnout was pretty good. And Democrats, many of them running on Biden's domestic agenda, did really, really well. I mean, it was, in in fact, a, a remarkably good day for Democrats. And so, it's it, what you end up is a situation where you've got kind of conflicting data points here. You do have polls that show there's a vulnerability for the president, and he, and, and he should be taking that seriously, as people around him should be taking that seriously. You don't set your poll, foreign policy, obviously, based on polls. I mean, you, there should be a moral dynamic, a practical dynamic, etc. But um, there should be a consciousness that, that people who have strongly supported him think he's wrong think he's he's in the wrong and that's something the president should be thinking about at the same time the alter, other data point is that the republicans it appears have made themselves so unattractive um on a series of issues and that includes abortion rights uh voting rights democracy itself um but many other issues as well that they they continue to lose 
um, and, and in fact lose quite badly. So we end up in a situation where um, I, I think you were wise, Richard, in starting out by saying you hate to talk about things that would happen a year from now, because there's a lot there's a lot of uh, conflicting information coming at us right now. And I, I think if we're smart, we we weigh it all. We put it all. You know, you kind of keep all these different thoughts in our head uh, and say, as any wise political commentator does, that um, we don't know where we're going to be a year from now. But what we do know is that there are some encouraging signs from the election results, but also some very discouraging signs, I think, if, if you're a Biden backer, if you're Biden, uh, from the polling data as regards many of the base groups in the Democratic coalition that are very disappointed in him at this point. Thank you, John. Uh- Ruthann Baumgartner has a question or comment for you. Sure. Um, first, I want to say I really enjoyed your article in, in The Current Nation and uh, its, uh, its discussion of polls versus be- voter behavior yeah. was, was, was really uh, reassuring. I'm so sick of seeing poll numbers because I know they don't really mean much of anything. I get polls in the mail every day. How do you feel about this? Are you willing to give us $3 to... Mm-hmm. <laughs> to support our cause. And I, I've devised a letter back that is rather snotty, but um, I can't turn on the television without seeing the polls. I have yet to see a, a poll report that told me who was polled, what the percentages were, what the that were considered, what was considered, whether, whether they were counting um, active people, uh, people alive, or whether this was a percentage of all Democrats or all Republicans. I don't know the terms of the polls, and so they're m- meaningless. And nevertheless, we're being expected to give our support, give our money, give our hopes, change our minds based on a bunch of numbers that somebody, maybe reliable, maybe not reliable, has told us are uh, reflective of something or other. Uh, is there is there any way to can we pass a law asking for more truth in polls? Because I, I really don't no. see I don't see any yeah. use to them, but they're they're omnipresent. Well, I mean, there are some countries that try to deal with polling a little bit in France, for instance. Um, you're not allowed to publish polls in the last few days before an election mm. uh, because they actually believe. And I think rather logically that people ought to be able to pause for a moment and not think about polling and think about their choices, right? Think about right. what motivates them morally, practically, you know, in, in whatever whatever drives them to vote as they do. Uh, and um, and so it's it's clear that the people around the world are conscious of this and sometimes have tried to 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 deal with some of the concerns. The fact of the matter is that we have a very freewheeling politics in America, whether you like it or not. And so the polls are going to be a part of it. The problem really is um, with our media, and our media is lazy. It is. Uh, it likes to get a set of polls and then to spend a week talking about them. And we saw that writ large in this, this last week, uh, last Sunday, a week ago. Um, the New York Times put out a set of polls that showed that Biden was trailing Trump in five of six battleground states. And that's a pretty you know, dark scenario, a very concerning one, I think, for a lot of Democrats. And you saw you know, kind of uh, MSNBC, CNN, radio networks, others. Everybody's just obsessed with this. It's kind of all they're talking about, these polls, these polls, these polls. And then they had an intervention on Tuesday, right, which was an actual election, not polling data, but an actual election where real people went to vote on real issues for real candidates, not in one or two places, but in uh, states across the country, including a number of battleground states like Pennsylvania and like Michigan, et cetera. And remarkably, the results from that were incredibly positive for the Democrats and, mm-hmm. frankly, at least somewhat positive for President Biden. Now, Biden wasn't on the ballot, and he has all the challenges. They, they will keep going. He is older. He is um, somebody that people are disappointed with on certain policies. Uh, he is governing during a time of inflation, all the challenges. And yet his party did remarkably well um, winning the governorship of Kentucky, uh, a red state, flipping the legislature in Virginia, 
um, expanding its control of the legislature in New Jersey, passing key referendums in a number of states, uh, you know, first and foremost being the uh, abortion rights referendum in Ohio, but then at the at the local and regional level, winning all sorts of races for mayoralties and county jobs, etc. I mean, this is not a political party that is in crisis, right? It is mm-hmm. a political party that's actually looking pretty strong. And, and I think that's, uh, that's, that's something that I was arguing is, you know, instead of just freaking out about polls, about something that's going to happen a year from now, um, think about, think about the actual tangible election results that you have now. What do they tell you? Now, two things I'll say with that, and these are both important. Number one, they don't tell you that Biden's going to win in 2024. That's not what the Tuesday's election results say. No, they don't. But what they do say is there are ways for Democrats to win in these times. And many of them do relate to Biden's agenda, to Biden's stances on the issues. Uh, And so the question becomes, how do you amplify that? How do you focus on it? How do you do the right things, not the wrong things? You know, smart politics. Um, And and then that draws us back into this discussion of Israel-Palestine, because, of course, um, that is a part of it, right? It's not, not everything, but it is a part of, you know, how you put this into perspective. And and so I think that that what I am arguing is maybe, you know, it's it's maybe not the most popular thing to argue, which is it's complicated, right? Right. <laughs> there's more to it than there's more to it than a set of polling data that is, you know, a snapshot in time. And I wish that our media did a better job of uh, digging into the complexity and and respecting it, uh, because I think it's in the complexity that we then begin to speak about moral and practical issues and how we approach them. And and frankly, for a society, that's a good thing. I think so, too. I, I just am constantly haunted by something a student said to me long ago when the, a group of kids had arrived for class early. This is college. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were just talking and they got talking about politics. I said, so, OK, I'm not writing this down, but, you know, who do you think you're going to vote for? And this one person, indelible boy, said, I'm voting for Nixon. And I said, why? And he said, because he's going to win. So I think one of the problems with putting up the polls, they are informative in their way, but they do look like bookies putting up odds and, uh, and helping to guide the, the behavior of the people hearing it. Yeah, if I can just come off that quickly, Ruthann, um, yeah. that's, there's also a, a counter to that. Some people vote on who they think is going to win, but also if people think their candidate doesn't have a chance to win, then they don't vote. It's effective. Yep. We're, we're almost out of time. I want to thank you for being here. John Nichols, Nation Magazine's National Affairs Correspondent. 